0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org.
1: Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org slash donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. This was a fun conversation that I did not originally see as being fun as we discussed with Richard the world, the flesh, and the devil because we talk about sin which we, I don't think we really talk about much in Christian circles.
2: I can't imagine why you wouldn't find this conversation fun, Paul. You don't like talking about evil? It's not fun for you?
1: Not fun for me. I'm just not as big of a sinner as you are.
2: Oh, oh, oh good <laughs> one. I appreciate that. No, but for any of you who have Grown up in the Christian tradition, whether a Protestant or a Catholic, this concept about sin and evil is a big one, right? For many of us, it's the very central piece to how, how we oriented toward our faith. We thought it was all about sinfulness and being saved from sinfulness. Right.
1: It can be that heavy thing that just hangs over our entire religious experience is what do we do with sin? How to become less sinful? How do we be perfect as Jesus is perfect? and setting you up to fail in a lot of ways. And I love the way that Richard helps us redefine sin and evil in the world because for me, again, it highlights this is part of the air we breathe is this complexity of being human Mm -hmm. in an absurd reality a lot of the time.
2: Yeah, and it's tricky, right? Because as we look at the ways in which there is this systemic evil that's at play in our world, there's a certain level of acceptance of that where we have to say, all right, there's something about this plane of existence that requires a certain level of friction and contradiction and opposition. And yet in the midst of that is the opportunity for us to participate in manifesting the next, the new, the, the kingdom of God, even at hand, even in this mess.
1: Yeah, even as we participate in systems where we are complicit with these big evils, these mm-hmm. these systems that go unchecked, and yet there's still beauty and goodness and truth we're also participating in, and it's the mystery we're wrapped up in. Mm -hmm.
2: I hope you all find this episode helpful as we dive into the world, the flesh, and the devil.
3: And I was just thinking, uh, even though God has blessed us thus far, let's let's offer a little prayer Mm -hmm. before we enter into this huge and important material. All holy and good God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to talk about such things, daring to do so. I thank you for two such people as Paul and Bree, and the safety and the love they hold as a container. May we fill it with truth, and not just with Richard's ideas. We trust in your guidance and your protection, and your love. We pray in all of the holy names of God. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Richard.
2: Thank you, Richard.
1: From prayers of blessing and protection to talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm-hmm. Richard. You write in your new monograph, What Do We Do With Evil?, that Christians seem to have lost their interest in sin, oh. not necessarily in practice, but in talking about it, trying to mm. wrestle with it. How do you define sin so we can get a kind of a, a baseline of what we're talking about here? Before uh, I'd love to he- hear how you
3: think Christians lost interest in talking about sin. There's a number of ways I could try to answer that. I'm sure none of them will be adequate. But for me, the biggest one is we didn't make the link between sin and evil clear. We called things sin uh, that were largely cultural, parent-taught, church-taught, which in many cases were or would at least lead to evil, but by trivializing the notion of sin, uh, people unfortunately threw out the whole idea. And now we have a, a culture that is very much bound up in sin. I don't know what else to say. Our capacity for deceit, for greed, for pride, for lust, for illusion is is overwhelming right now. So I want to say that right at the beginning so people don't think, oh, he's one of those liberals throwing out the notion of sin. I'm not. But I think we would do better to clarify the notion of evil. Uh, Do do I say that at the beginning of the book? I hope so. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, And then you can reinsert the notion of sin, but, but sin is more a prohibition not to do evil, you understand? Uh, but the listing of so many uh, common sins, in fact, the ones people took most seriously, I, we always use the not eating meat on Friday. It's easy to pick on us Catholics, but every denomination had such things. You Baptists had not drinking and
2: Or dancing, or wearing skirts. I mean, the list goes
3: on. (laughs) They they really got evil confused. Uh, All those things admittedly could lead to lust, could lead to greed, but you dealt with the symptom instead of the cause, Mm. and you call that sin. And it seems to me people just lost interest. In fact, the only ones who have retained interest are people who tend to be, I'm going to say at the blue level, at the arch-conservative level. They throw it around so easily, naming everybody else a sinner. Mm -hmm. That's the secondary reason, you know. Uh, That's a sin, that's a sin. And it was always things other people were doing, never what they were (laughs) doing. (laughs) Uh, So the whole thing fell apart in our lifetime, really, you know.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of that joke. I'm sure it's been told about every denomination. But like, why a certain group will pick on my own tradition, the covenant, didn't teach about sex, was because it might lead to dancing. Yes, mm. and it's just the the, the, <laughs> the foolishness of, of the things that we prioritize. In this.
2: I remember my parents had to keep it a secret that I was in ballet, like that that level of dancing. Like wow. they had to keep it a secret that I was in ballet, ballet. from the mission, lest they think yeah. you know. Yeah. They're Beware
1: their... of Borisnikov
3: <laughs> it, It's trivialized evil and allowed it to take over. Mm. I mean, the politics of America right now reveals that. Mm. Well, I, I mean, every time I turn on CNN or any channel, um, there are... Uh, they bring up the word evangelical Christians being the primary supporters of mm. this government mm-hmm. and it's just I just cringe mm. It's like are we really and not the even I'm an evangelical Christian but it's that obvious to secular America which is largely the the media it is largely secular that this ain't Jesus <laughs> but it's something other than Jesus you
2: know? mm. Well, Richard, diving into this topic of sin, I have to admit I am so deeply fatigued at the notion of a fallen world, you know? Mm. And I've said this to you before, that somehow our dear first hungry lady of curiosity and unfortunate timing ushered sin into the world by eating a piece of fruit. And um, yet you make a very helpful distinction in your monograph about what you mean by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I'd like to zoom in on the world a little bit. If you could help us unpack, how, how can we understand um, that within the framework of evil without condemning creation to somehow be broken and fallen?
3: Let me legitimate those words, first of all. They're, they're clearly in one paragraph in Ephesians. I'm opening to that right now. If Thank God Paul can edit this, right? Yes, or, you know. I should have had it ready no problem but I don't want them to think that this is again just my idea the clearest place is Ephesians 2 you were dead so he's trying to define a state of deadness Mm -hmm. and he gives three bases for this deadness through the crimes and the sins in which you used to live when you were following the way of the world there's the first level. Obeying the ruler who governs the air. That's the third level, what we're going to call the devil. Um, we all were among you living sensual lives, ruled entirely by our own physical desires and our own ideas. Uh, the flesh. So Ephesians 2, 2 1 to 3. Uh, although he's making them overlap very much. Now, the typical person, myself included, is going to read that rather quickly and say, oh, there's the usual religious jargon that's saying nothing. Hmm. I am convinced, and that's what I try to present in this new little booklet, that uh, Paul had, in fact, a very sophisticated notion of evil. And he, but in his circular way of teaching, like you see, In this paragraph, most people didn't get it clearly. It was clarified for me somewhere in the late 60s, probably in 66, my first year of moral theology, when my wonderful professor, Father Nicholas, uh, he said in in classic and traditional uh, moral theology, there were three sources of evil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And then he'd stop for a moment and say very strongly, because this was repeated throughout the four-year course, and in that order. Now, we didn't know what that meant yet. uh, Because in 1966, we had no notion of... Well, it was breaking free in the culture of structural sin, institutional evil... That's what created the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. As America began to discover that we're a lot of nice people, but we're all enthralled with a system that disobeys all of the capital sins with impunity. So I, I later, as I began to teach it, even back in my Cincinnati days to the community, I substituted the word, word, the system, for the world. Mm. Because mm. some people still, when you say the world, they think you mean creation. Exactly. <laughs> or nature. Right. Uh, or the planet. And, of course, that's not what we mean at all. Quite the contrary. But a lot of people rightly thought that the world, the world is passing away and so we don't have to take care of it, we don't have to protect it. So so I prefer to use the word the system, but I begin with these classic terms. So every institution, and I think we could all prove this if we were in a good sociology course, organizes itself for its own self-perpetuation, self-gratification, self-adulation it it, it uh, creates itself to survive mm-hmm. to look good to to earn money to have a certain validity and that's not bad it really you, I don't think there's any other way to do it we in the religious orders who claim to be a higher level of consciousness we all have insurance mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. use it uh, we get involved against Francis's orders with Filthy Lucre, but first got to name it Filthy Lucre uh-huh. and then say, okay, it isn't entirely filthy.
2: I'd like to start using that phrase just just because (laughs) uh, filthy lucre sounds so awesome. I guess that isn't so common anymore. No, not really.
3: (laughs) The whole of America worships filthy lucre. (laughs) Oh, um, so uh, it was only in, in the 80s then that a later pope, and I'm not a huge fan of Pope John Paul II for other reasons, but he did several things very well. And one was being raised under communism. He was able to critique communism, which we would expect from popes, but he equally critiqued capitalism. Mm. And with that, in his encyclical letters, he pointed out how both were idolatrous systems, and he introduced to Catholic thinking, uh, although the the right hasn't accepted that yet. And these are the very people who love John Paul so much, but they don't read what he really wrote. Uh, Two words, structural sin and institutional evil. Mm. And now I'm already bridging into the flesh, but let me say it this way. Before an individual feels free to commit any of the capital sins with impunity, it has to be affirmed at least partially good collectively. Mm. You know? You you don't want to feel too much shame about it, you see. Now, this is what previous cultures, probably what we were raised in. Mm. They succeeded in totally shaming Uh, the personal level of greed or lust or whatever it might be, Uh, not realizing we'd already said yes to murder, let's say, at the war level, (laughs) Mm -hmm. at the capital punishment level. I mean, it came as a complete surprise when the popes, uh, now three in a row, have all come out against capital punishment. Well, we never heard that before, Mm -hmm. the typical Catholic says, which shows we're we're trying to get a little more consistent. But if we don't nip it in the bud at the world level and recognize that evil is already congealing, evil is already making itself attractive and good and necessary, I emphasize the word necessary, we can't live without it. We have to have wars, we have to have capital punishment. Mm. If you live at a retributive, superficial level, I admit that probably seems to be true. But um, now as we're creating a more consistent ethic of life, we're learning to recognize the first level. But I wanna say that's largely a product of the last 40, 50 years. Uh, And most people still haven't heard of it. Mm. Mm. Before that time, all of our emphasis was put on the second level. Mm. And I mean all. So I'll stop at that Mm. so we get the three levels clear. Guessing you're going to ask me about the second, are you? Maybe not. No,
2: I mean, I think one of the tension points with making sense out of the different levels of evil the way you're describing it the personal and systemic and um is is the tension point between that understanding that and this concept of the christ-soaked world Mm -hmm. there's a real there's a there's a real dissonance with that
3: (laughs) you're you're being intellectually honest here i say it's a christ-soaked world and uh
2: And yet we have all these systems. We have, yes. And it's good, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. creation is good. It is good. It's very good. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, made in the image, yet we don't reflect the likeness. We we impose these systems that perpetuate and excuse certain evil to exist.
3: This has always been what a lot of unbelievers, non-Christians, former Christians have hated us for. We, these, we appear to be making contrary statements. Uh, the very people who emphasize or should emphasize the goodness of reality, the goodness of creation, have really put more of their emphasis upon the sinfulness mm-hmm. of creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hate to be biased, but that, that largely emerged after the Reformation. Not that we didn't, not that we didn't have it in Catholicism. But Catholicism, basically, for those who studied it, had a positive psychology and a positive anthropology. But once we um, we were the typical, you know, oh, I guess you're too young to remember a salesman at the door selling vacuum cleaners. And they'd come in and...
2: Wait, was that before Amazon? Or (laughs) just... They
3: they literally, the worst kind, would come in your room and as soon as you open the door, pour dust on your floor.
2: Oh, come on.
3: Yes, yes. Wow. Oh, my mother was so upset. I bet. (laughs) Well, I'm here to clean it up. I can do it and show you how my Kirby, <laughs> so uh, whatever bizarre. the brand was, right. can clean it up. Why of all contraptions, vacuum cleaners were sold door to oh. door? I don't know. Mm. But that's what a lot of preachers became. Mm. Uh, spiritual vacuum cleaners <laughs> are good. sin managers. Yeah. Mm. We had to convince the crowd... Uh, especially when preaching became the primary sacrament, because it really was for the last 500 years. You had to be a good preacher or you couldn't be a, a pastor, I wouldn't think. You came in and put dirt on the, the ladies' hall room, hall, hallway floor. You had to remind humans of their sinfulness, wrongness, and then say, you know what? I have the answer for it. It's (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) And it worked for that level of consciousness, Uh you know. Uh, Jesus came to save you from your sin, which is still the billboard Mm -hmm. in the deep south of the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, I hope I'm answering your question that that because we came to emphasize evil almost as much, if not more, then it is, good, it is 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 very good. Uh, now we're having a hole to dig out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because people don't see the evidence that we proclaimed, uh, you know, original goodness, original blessing, mm-hmm. as uh, Matthew Fox called it. Uh, so now we got a lot of makeup work to do. Yeah.
2: Right? Well, this leads so well into my next question because it's addressing this this tension point, you know, I mean, you've said earlier, and I can't stop thinking about that phrase to bear serenely or to serenely bear. Yeah. That there's something about learning to bear our own um, inconsistencies and our own combination of factors as the whole picture being, this is what it means to be human. Um, It's so difficult for us to do that. It seems like a lot of this, this issue about defining evil and understanding where and who and the causality—it's like we're still trying to get out of being human somehow, and in That's par-
3: what it became. Yeah, Go ahead. Go and ahead. in
2: particular. Um, mm you know, this word fleshy, right? The flesh. Flesh. Fleshy has actually become a term I'm trying to use as an adjective. I'm trying to start a contemplative trend here to say if something's really cool, it's it's just fleshy. (laughs) It's just fleshy, you know, like if something's really good, oh, that's, that's real fleshy. Redeeming
3: Paul.
1: Explains
2: Um, why you keep calling me fleshy. (laughs) Right. Oh, right. No, that might be for other reasons, Paul. Uh, But how did, how did Paul's use of that term um, throw us off a bit into a panic about bodiliness and sexuality when in fact he actually meant something else
3: yes I would I, and you know I love Paul he's a hero to me but we'd have to pretty much blame if we've got to blame somebody for the mistranslation misunderstanding of the word flesh we'd have to trace it direct line back to Paul Because he chooses that word, sarx in Greek, in contradistinction to spirit. And at great length, in Romans and in Galatians especially, uh, he he loves to teach by dialectic, putting things in opposition, usually reconciling them if you stay with him. I love to teach that way myself. Uh, the community back in Cincinnati, when I I used to, even Sunday morning homilies, I'd give them little handouts, you know. they say, okay, here comes one of his two-columned handouts. (laughs) I'd always have two columns. And uh, compare the two, and that's why this one's bad and this one's Uh good. Mm -hmm. And then you reconcile it. In general, Paul did reconcile his dualisms, you know. You know, Jews and Greeks being one example, male and female. He could have gone farther with that. Just a little. Just a little (laughs) bit, yeah. In Galatians. Uh, But the one he never even tried to reconcile is flesh and spirit. Mm. And so we got stuck with it. So flesh almost became a synonym for sin. In fact, it did, right? You know, uh, uh, I have an evangelical friend here, Eli, and when he first met me, he was always using the word "that's of the flesh." That's of the flesh. he was raised evangelical, you know. I said, "Let me give so I bored him with his whole history, and now he never uses that word anymore. But huh. in his Mexican evangelical beginnings, that's that's of the flesh. So. Uh, the better word which I want to offer at the beginning that comes as close as I know how to uh, say today what he meant then is our psychological word ego. Uh, Egocentricity, narcissism, vanity, pride. Those words all uh, are overlapping in many ways. But uh, the self-sufficient self, which is cut off from communion, connection, compassion. Uh, that transit. So next time you read Romans, next time you read Galatians, every time you read flesh, just mark it out, put in ego, and you'll come much closer to the truth of what I believe he was really trying to say. But... Now, you haven't asked me to define flesh yet, have you, positively? No, go for it, though. Okay, I'll move into it. So, what do we have? Ego, first of all, applies to the individual. And that's exactly right. That flesh is individual failure, nastiness, uh, selfishness, blindness... Uh, individual sin let's use that word but it's very much the individual not the corporate now the reason we sin so readily is because it was already agreed upon collectively as not so bad Mm -hmm. in our country we call it capitalism to save money to hoard money to desire money is, is the whole name of the game in America and people are shocked when you say that. Yet it's obvious. I mean, little kids are already, you see them on TV, you know, relishing getting rich. They'll just say it up front. So any attempt to talk about the capital sin of gluttony, you're wasting your time. Mm. Gluttony is good. What was the movie? That's Great. Wall Street. Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, greed is good. Greed That's is good, the way yeah. they said it. Greed is good. Greed and gluttony are, we've lost that battle because it's first of all been legitimated. So, what we're building here now is what Dom Helder Camara, the holy archbishop from Brazil, who was here at Holy Family Church, believe it or not, wow. and addressed the CAC in the early years, yeah. And uh, a truly holy man. And he taught the spiral of violence. And once you hear his teaching or anybody's teaching on the spiral of violence, you'll see they almost perfectly coincide and overlap. He describes violence begins by cultural agreement that uh, uh, Jim Crow laws are okay. Let's try Mm -hmm. that. uh and 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 in the law in fact they're written the law says or right now immigration people are saying it's the law well you you'd think christians would come right back and say but the law of god overrides human laws yeah. they never say that right mm-hmm. cuz they really believe cuz it's an american law i'm bound by it i'm not mm-hmm. <laughs> That is new thinking to most Christians. Mm-hmm. The first centuries, they would have taken that for granted.
2: Even though when you think about how many times Jesus said such things. Yes. Like yes. you have heard it say, or the law says right. this, yes, but I yes, say. Yes, yes, very good. Yeah.
3: Another word for flesh, by the way, that the Gospels use is mammon. Hmm. Mammona was a, a, a pagan god of... of uh, greed and gluttony and money. And Jesus himself seems to have used it. Anyway, uh, so what we've done now for centuries is put all of our guns on the second level, Mm -hmm. telling people not to be of the flesh, not to be lustful, not to be selfish, not to be greedy, not to murder people. And I think we can say safely, we've had little success. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, look at Europe and look at us, the, the supposedly Christian countries. Uh, we're the most materialistic, the most violent. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have to prove that they're the most, but we're as bad as anybody else for mm-hmm. sure. So uh, our moral theology, we found ourselves... Uh, spitting into the wind, yeah. mm. just preaching moralistic sermons that could not be received. And in fact, if you, this is very apropos to what we said before, if you move to the first level of the world, the people will come in the sacristy. Aftermath, Father, you're getting a little political. Right.
2: Uh huh. <laughs> you're getting
3: a little because they never heard that before. Mm-hmm. You can't even blame them. You know, we're used to being shamed. Come on, shame us. Tell us we're terrible. <laughs> oh they almost gosh. like it. Mm-hmm. I think that's true of Baptists and many. Yeah, they they want to be told how un- sinful they are so they can throw themselves at the feet yeah. of Jesus. Right. Yes. And that's dear, I guess. But the long run, it doesn't work. And, and, and ahead, it please. perpetuates just the, uh, the
1: cognitive dissonance that Christians... Seem to exemplify in a lot of ways where there is the, the separation of what it means to be on this Christian path and then how one goes about living the rest of their life because culture is devouring spirituality in that way where
3: culture is
1: winning. Yep, I'd rat you know rather pay my dues in culture and climb this ladder of ascension than to follow this path of Jesus and cost
2: me something. Might
1: cost me something. This goes back to the values piece too, right? Like when those values aren't ingrained and embodied in a. Spiritual community and an individual, of course, you know the the world is going to win out in that way because uh, that is the air we breathe in the day to day, and I, I yeah, it, it speaks to me too so much of just the you know with Paul and your style of teaching too where you set up these polarities and then reconcile them. I feel like most of religion is just setting up the polarities That's and never right. reconcile. Them. Never reconcile. Just living in that constant uh, cognitive dissonance is exhausting. So, like, mm. the hell with religion well, in a way, well right? Put, it's, well put, you It's know? just get in the way of me it's just following they, the greedy path.
3: They create, me, uh, create my mind to be schizophrenic. Uh, mm-hmm. What really is evil? What yeah. really is good? I don't know, so I give up on the whole thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't live this tortured existence, mm-hmm. so I stop. I mean, it was like teenage boys when I was a teenager. They say, how can you not have a sexual thought? And we were told you go to hell for all eternity if you have one. I mean, right? So well, I mean, as soon as they could get away from high school, they, yeah. <laughs> Catholic high school, they left the church. Yeah. Impossible situation. Impossible. Yeah.
2: In- It's also reminding me of your teaching of that trilateral hermeneutic, where it's like when you only focus on one of the three, you're zooming in on one thing, and then it kind of justifies a certain particular perspective because it's not in tension with the other two. And similarly with this, the overemphasis at this level of the flesh allows you to nitpick at things at this level without even admitting or noticing the waters we swim in culturally that are justifying. So let me just go to church and hear about how Jesus cares so much about the poor and then, you know, make sure to go hit up that sale on Macy's. You know, it's like, (laughs) it just, you know, it's like, I want to be, you know, it's and this, this maybe is why we've justified um, and perpetuated a nice Christianity. Nice. Mm-hmm. It's nice. It's like, let me just have my nice life, and I want to go to my nice church, mm-hmm. and I don't want my nice thoughts to be threatening or to be threatened. And then it's this lukewarm nothingness.
3: <laughs> yeah. Niceness instead of truth. Mm-hmm. Or niceness instead of justice. And, and now it's so commonly accepted that... People really resist when you move them out of that or say the gospel is more than that.
1: Another Name for Everything will continue in a moment.
0: Explore Art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of wanting the biannual journal from the center for action and contemplation wanting art and spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians including scott avitt josh Radner, Lourdes bernard and more get your copy today at cac.org slash wanting art that's cac.org slash o-n-e-i-n-g-a-r-t have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org online-ed. That's cac.org O-N-L-I-N-E E-D.
1: And I know we've uh, touched on the devil in season two, but I think it'd be helpful in this context also. Oh, did also... we say
3: this already? Well, we,
1: no, not this, but just we talked it there. We got a lot of questions from listeners about the devil and how does that All uh, right. play into these uh, <laughs> conversations of the universe of Christ. But in this context of the world, the flesh, and the devil, Richard, would you be able to unpack how, especially since they're also interconnected in the way you're layering it with what uh, Dom Hilder uh, uh, was saying? Can you speak to the the, the devil a little bit?
3: Yes. Now this will take longer because it's a rather total reimagining. While not throwing out, the concept is very real and you would be naive to throw out the very notion of evil spirits. Let's first of all analyze the word spirit. It usually means something invisible, but it still has power an invisible power, and in this case, a negative invisible power. When I asked Father Seren, uh, do I have to believe in the devil? He says, well, you don't have to believe in a guy with a red pitchfork, Uh, but you better recognize that all the major religions of the world, historically, had some notion of the devil that was so real, it was even personified, and visualized in statues, uh, especially in the Orient. Uh, mm-hmm. There were devils at every door, or gargoyles in medieval cathedrals. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to give uh, evil a face, or, and here's the assumption, which Jung very much agrees with, if you don't give it a face, you don't know how to talk to it, relate to it, take it seriously. Huh? Mm-hmm and Jung very much says that's true until you personify something you don't take it as a power it's just an idea so I can see why we did that and all the other world religions did it but it became over time a caricature uh, of the guy with the tail and the pitchfork he was usually red for some
2: reason I don't know why uh, because red is the color of sin, Richard. Sin, that's right. <laughs> the blood. Yeah, the
3: woman with the feminine. adultery on her, written on her chest. Right. Uh, the A, the big A. Scarlet letter, yeah. Um, so uh, halfway into that definition, they were very right. It's, it's an invisible negative force. Now, I'm going to transfer that to modern language. Because Paul doesn't have modern language. He has pre-modern language. And I want you to notice, well, the phrase I use from Ephesians, he talks about obeying the ruler who governs the air, the spirit who is at work in the rebellious. So the easiest way to imagine that is a little spirit flying around. And if if someone proves there are such things, I'm not going to be upset. It's okay. But it doesn't help you address the issue if you think it's that. Because you too easily project that spirit onto people who are not like you. Mm -hmm. Other races, other religions. They have devils. My wife has a devil. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, that doesn't mean much proving. Unstable people either over-identify with it and that's probably what called forth this whole tradition of exorcism or projected onto uh, the tribe on the other side of the river. They all have demons. Here's the words I have learned to use in the living school. Anything that is a complex, a constellation of energies that is so in charge so universally uh, recognized that it's too big to fail it's you can't capture it you can't localize it this ability to localize it gave us some comfort you understand Mm -hmm. we could exercise that but precisely the spirit in the air can't be localized it's It's all around us, like you spoke of the air. You Mm -hmm. use that very word. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. It's the way the system works. And so if the first level, the world, was denied and disguised evil, let's just use those two Mm -hmm. words, you deny it and disguise it, everybody acts out of it at the flesh level with largely without much guilt, What will happen over time if it is not critiqued is it will not just be denied and disguised. It will become romanticized uh, and sanctified and sacralized as very good. Mm. Now, people are saying, what is he talking about? I want you to just think Mm -hmm. of the glorification of war in almost every culture in the world. Just look at the statues in the city squares of the world. Always a soldier. Uh, uh, you know it's it, it, and it's all identified with badges and parades and salutes and and honor words like that, sacred honor and and beautiful cemeteries and. Uh, 4th of July parades in our country and every other country. Mm -hmm. So killing has become and must become so romanticized when you do it for your country that it's no longer evil. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the phrase that was when this was first introduced in our country was by a Republican president in the late 1950s the day after he left office and was no longer a general, that someone who was both a president and a general, the day after, would give a speech, look it up, would coin the phrase, the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower said it. He said, you better watch it. It's going to take over America. Mm. I can't believe a Republican would say that. But Republicanism was very different then. And this is what has happened. This spirit in the air, I mean, our amount of, of uh, instruments of killing and boats and uh, is just unbelievable, and, and it, it covers the earth. It covers the earth, and it is above question. Mm-hmm. It's usually not even debated in the Congress. Mm-hmm. That's how sanctified it is. Mm. Everything else can get debated education how much pay a teacher gets well uh, we don't think they're they deserve that mm-hmm. but you're you're a retiring general or admiral you get your set for the rest of your life so that's the clearest example but let me give several others the military industrial complex is too big to fail above question above critique if you like that mm. Now, this is what made me create the three boxes of order disorder. When you have no introduction of disorder, of recognizing the problems with these systems, you're not allowed to say it or you'll be voted out of office. So I'm going to make a, a, an absolute statement that's going to upset some people. But anything that is uncriticable will soon be demonic. Mm. I'm going to say that. (laughs) Give it a few years. And where's the first demon in Mark's gospel? In the synagogue. Religion uncritiqued will soon become demonic. Pedophilia crisis, huh? Mm -hmm. Uh, The penal system. You've heard me say many times how I was a, a jail chaplain here in Albuquerque for 14 years. And what became so apparent to me is that most, not all, Most of the wardens and guards uh, wanted to punish these people, not improve them or help them. uh. The underlying spirit in the air was punishment. uh. Not just punishment, but humiliation. Why why do you want to be a prison guard on the first level? You like the power differential. When you walk up and down and you've got all the power, and that poor slob over there has no power. What kind of person loves that? And I'm not saying it's true in all cases, mm-hmm. but very often the banking system—I mm. mean, the World Bank—does not care about the poor. <laughs> does not care that much of the world is starving. So the healthcare system, and, and and all I would ask people to do is be honest. Most of them, now let me hesitate a little bit, but I'm still going to say it in its bold form, are demonic. Hmm. Hmm. When I say that, I'm not saying that every individual guard is demonic or every individual soldier, many of whom are more moral than I am. But we're so used to imputing all sin and guilt to the individual. You know, We the only student I'm aware of who angrily left uh, the living school was I was halfway into this talk and I mentioned the banking system, yeah. And her husband was a banker. Uh, If she'd stayed a little longer, I'm not saying every individual banker. Some of them live quite ordinary, generous, good lives. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying the banking system it's a system that once you buy into it, you're trapped. Any Anything that sucks you into its collective mood and justifies you being dishonest. Look at our political system is just it's so corrupt now. Mm-hmm. You just wonder how will we ever get out of this? That it's acceptable to lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've normalized deceit. We've normalized illusion. Uh, So you get a feeling for it. It's the hardest one to describe. But it's in charge. You know, I mean, if you think I'm being negative, what does Jesus say? Satan is the prince of this world. Mm -hmm. The devil is in charge. Don't picture the red demon again. But the spirit's in the air. Now his other words for that were powers principalities, thrones, and dominations. Those are pre-modern words for institutions and corporations. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, don't make me anti-institutional. I'm not, but I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you allow me to say both? Uh, you, you can't if you're a dualistic thinker. You're a crazy anti-institutional liberal. I'm really not, but things without critique all become demonic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to love and critique just as I do the Catholic Church and the United States and I hope myself. Richard's good, but Richard's not that good. <laughs> uh, we all got to be able to say that. But
2: that's exactly what I was gonna. I was gonna say is that there's a, this is helpful as a litmus test to say what am I unwilling to critique? Mm. You know, what is there that's anything right, yeah. in my? It really is. It's so you know? simple. Yeah. And yeah. then to notice when I, you know, I'm thinking of um, having some students who've gotten really riled up about us talking about white privilege. It's like, okay, what's going on there? Um, but I think the other thing I was thinking about is the, the ways in which capitalism or consumerism has created a world where there's an I, it relationship. That's right. With everything. And I think I was trying to find a trail of like, well, where would you put, um, you know, this, this, uh increased consumer orientation even in our sexuality you know i was trying to trace like okay where did this how did this happen and i and i felt like as i pull on that thread you're right it's not at the flesh level it's at the at the big corporate Mm -hmm. level of consume use for your own benefit discard and when you get to that place where you are treating beings as things that can be used for your own pleasure and then discarded, you that's both in the died. Yes. And that's in our system so deeply that yeah. we don't even notice it. We glorify it, you know?
1: Yeah. And you know, this part of what this brings to my mind too is uh, as a kid, I remember asking about fossil fuels. If we knew this was going to hurt the ozone layer, why were we so dependent on them?
3: Mm. And you could and, already see that with the boy's, Clarity. Huh? And I
1: remember being told, well, it's a necessary evil, oh, which okay. I think people would say too, with like yes. advertising and sexualizing of, of bodies as a way to sell something. Um, yep. And not seeing what they're perpetuating. But it's a similar things. So, Richard, how, how do you respond when someone says, from a universal Christ perspective, when someone says, well, Richard, unchecked capitalism or the military industrial complex is just a necessary evil?
3: I would say, you're half right. And grant me that I really mean that. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by, we used to use the term, living in a fallen world. There is no pedestal of purity. Mm -hmm. That's why I call evil in this same new book, the tragic sense of life. Mm -hmm. None of us are pure, or as Paul says, all have sinned, but you're half wrong. And you gotta almost say, say those two statements together. And until you know you're half wrong, you do not gain the ability to critique that system. Like the common phrase, "Well, you criticize America? Well, the president just said it. If you why not leave? Yeah. Talk about dualistic thinking. Anything you criticize, you have to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. See, we've got a very free worldview. Mm we can stay in it imperfect and and we don't need to leave yeah. but we will offer it our fair critique the world does not know how to do that you have to be enthralled with it or leave it i think we have a far more advanced position whereby we can can you know i can love america but i do not worship america i see america's faults which actually allows me to love it better in the true meaning of love. I love that which is lovable, Mm -hmm. but I don't love that which is unlovable. Mm -hmm. That's not love anymore. (laughs) When you say you love things that are causing pain to black people, brown people, immigrant people, you've prostituted your ethics, Mm -hmm. your morality. And that's part of what we do. It isn't all that we do. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's hard to get people to think that way. You see why we emphasize in the living school so much non-dual thinking. Mm. I don't think in the first years I applied that enough to evil. To recognize evil, but to not need to overreact and throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's forgiveness. Mm. I forgive reality for being partial. I forgive myself for not being totally perfect and totally pure, which is no goal that we should even set for ourselves. But we have to recognize good and evil to know how to even do that. Mm-hmm. It's subtle. I know it's subtle. And I, I want to ask God when I get there, whatever there is, <laughs> why he left us with such a dilemma.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a it seems like this is a thread that's running through... Our conversations in this season is that non-dual thread in them that can accept the complexity of both. Mm. You know, and you have this line that says sin is it's first of all an impossible situation of human life, yes, yes. perhaps summed up in the phrase, "You can't win." And then you also yes. you also say things like, the only available perfection we have is our honest acceptance of our imperfection. Mm. I mean, these are non-dual mm. uh, teachings Concept. because, As we look at evil and as we as we see it as structurally systemic part of our world, uh, you know, the response that we may have is like, well, how do we combat it or how do we try to move it one step forward? And suddenly I'm thinking of um, the imagery that Jesus uses of yeast and leaven. Yes. That to me, it's like it's within other, (laughs) you know, the yeast is within the dough that you know That's that right. that yes. we can act as yeast within the dough it doesn't deny the dough though <laughs> like it doesn't deny we're still actively in a world that has these systems at play and yet the point is that we are active within it mm. not not without does that make sense am i it, making sense it totally sense? makes
1: sense and i think it harkens back to other parts of our conversation about living in the air of absurdity like it isn't like that is almost the dough. The dough is so absurd. How do it be a yeast that makes sense that will help leaven it to this, its fullness of a loaf of bread. I recognize that metaphor does not work that
4: well. But, <laughs> no, uh, I, like it. okay, I like it. I'm going okay. with it. We're Jesus thought you. it was good enough, so let's do
1: it.
2: <laughs> but within that, I think um, that idea of yeast in bread, yes. you know, one of the Im- images that um, is so profound and a part of our tradition is this idea of a babe in a manger in mm. in the midst of violence and in the midst of empire and in the midst of all of these systems of evil very much at play in mm. the context of where Jesus was born how does that babe in a manger how can that help us orient mm. to and yet you know okay so these things are at play and yet here is this this beautiful image of the, the vulnerable Christ mm. still being born, mm-hmm. still manifesting, you know, the light in the darkness, the, this little candle. I mean, there's so many images like that that we can perhaps turn to to animate our own um, awareness of evil and our own um, participation in, in moving beyond or mm. trying to bring something else into the world. Mm.
3: Yeah, I, that's actually courageous to say that because the first instinct of a rational male for, oh, God, a sentimental thing about motherhood, now, you know. <laughs> but if God wants to give us an image of vulnerability that most human beings can relate to, a little naked baby in a, a, a stable, Uh, Not even born where human beings live, but where animals live, subject to the elements.
2: Well, and born Uh, in a time when when there was so much political unrest Uh that shortly thereafter, firstborns were murdered. You know, Uh I mean, like, what can you think of a more violent image than
3: firstborns being... That God has come into the world in a vulnerable, naked form. And this is the gospel he gives us cuz what we've just talked about is you have to be free to be some degree naked from any kind of status mm. self-image i'm above sin i'm uh, you know uh, not unworthy no you're even unworthy mm. <laughs> mm. you you can't place yourself among the righteous mm. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we would, have, and that became one of the chapters in the uh, Universal Christ book, that we have to see sin as a collective. And if we had addressed sin as a collective notion, that the burden of sin is something I agree to carry along with you. In carrying mine, I carry yours. I don't try to prove that I'm above it. Isn't that very notion what's prostituted most most religion? Yeah. Trying to prove I'm holier than thou. No, I'm a sinner just like you. That was the first public statement of Pope Francis. Who are you? They held up the microphone to him, and he said, "I am a sinner." Mm. Wow, that's good. That's yeah. good. The the racing competing game is over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's far more fundamental than we realize. To bear the the weight of glory and the burden of sin, which is are both collective notions, makes you emphasize holding hands instead of flying above. Yeah. If you can feel it. Yeah.
1: It reminds me of the story of when Jesus' disciples were, you know clobbering over each other who's going to be sitting next to jesus Mm -hmm. who's gonna be the greatest and what does jesus do if it turns to the child yes and vulnerable vulnerable, like even he enters the world in such a way and then that's also what he uplifts as uh as the path right
2: Hmm. well as we wrap up this conversation richard um where do you feel like we need to face the world the flesh and the devil critique, even within our Christian contemplative movement, where, where do we need to be open to seeing some of our own shadow?
3: You know, you're bringing it home, because this is what we have to watch for. Uh, you know, the CAC these days has been so blessed by uh, a wonderful staff, Wonderful, charming adobe properties here in the South Valley of uh, the Mexican American Barrio of Albuquerque, uh, a staff of almost 50. There's just hardly any, I don't know of any, Peace and Justice Center that even comes close to what we've got. So, this question that you just asked, we gotta keep asking. Mm because when do we become a complex? Mm, mm-hmm. When do we become so worshipful? We're, I'm gonna talk this afternoon to the board, some of the members of the board and staff about what does simplicity of life mean for the board and the staff? We can't just keep teaching these things while we ourselves are becoming more and more comfortable. Mm. Uh, or the whole thing isn't going to sustain itself mm-hmm. if there aren't at least a, a core of staff who are into some form of downward mobility, or, or you know the nakedness that we see mm-hmm. in the baby in the manger. If we're all really into upward mobility, while two thirds of the world is starving, why should anybody take us seriously? And here we are in the richest country in the world, comfortable on so many levels. So it's just very easy for us to uh, buy into the system here. It really is. And it's never easy to say, I know this over my 32 years here, because what's the usual response, even from staff, even from good staff? You're making me feel guilty yeah because that's the only level they're used to evil being addressed mm-hmm. on. Right. I'm talking about the world, how much are we buying into the world? That's it. I'm talking about the devil, how much but um, that very inability for board and staff to allow themselves to be critiqued means we're part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. If insofar as that's true, I'm not saying it's overwhelmingly true, Mm -hmm. but always when you first do it with a new staff member or a new board member, you can tell they're shocked, Mm -hmm. if not disappointed, if not angry. Uh, We're not used to this. We Mm -hmm. thought we we were joining a place where, in fact, the, the phrase of my first popular book, Everything Belongs, is now being misused, in my opinion. Oh no,
2: used against you as a yeah. as a like. Whoa. Well,
3: Richard, everything belongs. <laughs> you see how the eagle will. miss yeah. Everything, even my selfishness, belongs. Oh, even my arrogance belongs. So. But it's, oh.
1: it's funny how, even as you talk about this, it's exactly what we've been naming as. You, the gift and the thread that you've been had your entire career of, you're trying to re- reconcile these polarities of like, yes, this is true. We live in this, these waters of greed and arrogance, yeah. but we cannot become that. Mm-hmm. And so we have to live within that. And what does it mean for us to be that reconciling principle by clearly seeing what's going on and mm-hmm. also clearly trying to follow the intention of being an alternative way of being in the world?
3: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Without becoming judgmental, yeah arrogant, dismissive, that that's what I think Jesus means by it's a narrow road. Mm. It's really narrow to know how to do both.
2: Well, and Richard, you've you've lived um, the example of humility of allowing yourself to be critiqued. It's and a,
3: I know who I am right?? I know I'm not. <laughs> but yeah.
2: even that statement right there is is such um, it's such a legacy for us to live into for all of us to live into, to live with that level of humility, because it seems to me that it's your humility which allows you to see, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna forget these three levels of things that are at play mm. around me. So it's a real invitation for me and I think for all of us to live into um, so that we can have the eyes to see where we're becoming complicit with right. the world, the flesh, and the devil without even realizing it. Mm. So thank you. Yes, thank, thank
1: you. you. We'll try to keep you humble, too. Give me my
3: daily humiliation. What is it? Thank you, thank you.
1: And here are a couple of voicemails from our listeners. Hi there, Richard,
4: Brian, Paul. My name's Andrew Dibb. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Only very new to your ideas and and even the ideas or the depth of Christ and Jesus. Uh, So... I've had lots of questions come up in me recently and one of them has to do with something I heard Richard talk about, about free will and and how our actions only have meaning because we've chosen to act in that way rather than them being predetermined. And what comes up in my mind is a contradiction between that and the notion that Christ is in everything. So is Christ also in the the seemingly destructive or or seemingly sort of negative things that free will creates i.e. you know bullets guns pollution uh, hate is christ truly in everything and is everything truly christ or or is it only the the you know is it only imbued in the things that are so called created in god's name you know through god's will i guess or christ's will I hope that makes a little bit of sense, and um, thank you very much.
3: If we're going to be consistent, we have to say, uh, yes, that God is even in the negative, what I I call the integration of the negative. This is the rub that causes such problems for, for most people. They'll stretch to see God in the positive, but until we can integrate the negative, which God seems to have understood would be a problem because that's the revelation of the cross. Once we say that God can be found even in the tragic, uh, in the sinful, in the broken, uh, that's, how, how could you symbolize that any stronger than the image of the crucified Jesus? He says, here I am here I hang, I'm in this part of reality too. We haven't done that very well up to now because we made the cross into a transaction instead of a lesson for uh, how wholeness is achieved, how love is achieved, by forgiving reality for being the way it is. And I know this is hard to swallow, Uh, Right now, while we're answering or trying to answer these questions, your very country is burning. And so it's easy for me over here to say, oh yeah, God is in that. Let me at least soften it this much. I'm not saying God caused it, but that God allows it fully for things to take their course. That's pretty obvious. And that God uses this natural pushback, this uh, inevitable denial of the good to create good on other levels. Uh, I mean, our hearts are breaking. I heard, I heard a half a billion animals have perhaps burnt to death in Australia. How, how do you make sense of that? Uh, it just breaks our hearts, and yet there's no way to make sense of history. I I was visiting a a friend from Portugal last week, and they told me about the famous earthquake, tsunami, flood of Lisbon. Somewhere in the, what century? I'm not even sure. 16th, 17th century. Where basically the whole city of Lisbon was was destroyed. <laughs> Oh my God, Uh, you just, you, you go crazy if you try to logically make sense of that. That's why we do it through symbols like the crucifixion, that God will include the absurd. Now the good side of that is that means God includes your absurdity too. Your sinfulness, your brokenness is not held against you. So what first looks like a a, a tragic universe ends up in my favor or in your favor saying, okay, if this is the way God integrates, I forgive the psychological language, but integrates the problem, forgives the problem is religious language. Thank God he does it in me. Because you and I have major blind spots. We've all done things we're ashamed of. uh, And we've got a God who can deal with that. Who is not bothered by that. So you started with the notion of free will. Every time God forgives, God is saying... God is asserting the preeminent freedom of God to not obey God's own rules to not be reasonable, uh, to not be right. I prefer relationship with you over my own rules. This is the free will of God. The man I quote so often that nobody's ever heard of, John Duns Scotus. That was one of his big points. And it was called voluntarism, f- free will. We placed, He placed free will higher than intellect. And we fought with the good Dominicans about that. They put Dominican, they put intellect as the highest. We put free will as the highest. Because free will makes love possible in God and in us. Mm. That makes sense to me. Of course, I've been trained in it. But. Yeah. Mm.
1: I feel like it, it took on a new lens for me once I became a parent that, mm. you know, if I could, I would protect my kids from everything. But I know that growth and love is not possible without the vulnerability that yep, yep. enacts in free will. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. It caused me to grow up in ways that I totally I, understand. I so, wish you I, had I those have two to.
3: little darlings, you should see them. <laughs> Who wouldn't protect them?
5: <laughs> Hi, Paul, Bree, and Father Richard. This is Amy from Southeastern Virginia. And although I grew up Catholic, I am now a member of a Baptist church. Some of my fellow church members like to claim ownership to this particular church, to have pride in the church and what the church is doing. I see the church to which I've attached myself as God's church and bristle at this idea of possession. It seems a limiting of God and an attempt to bolster self and ego. You say it is the culture that transforms, not the religion. How do we affect change in such a culture? What is the culture you are seeking to create? What does it look like? How can it grow within our current dualistic culture and generate transformation? Thank you.
3: Uh, Beautifully put, Amy. Uh, Yeah, how do we change culture? We were not trained to think of Christianity that way. And yet the fact that both Jesus and Paul use the metaphor of leaven tells me that they did, that they saw that as our job. For me, and I, I might be focusing in on the wrong thing, but I think it, it, it amounts to moving from a, an idolatry of power mm. to a, a love of powerlessness, vulnerability, mutuality, receptivity. Uh, Now, first we have to recognize this quality in God. And that up to now, God has always been male, has always been on a throne, has always been almighty, made this pretty hard because we had no model for it in the divine. We didn't know how to do it. Uh, one uh, evangelical theologian or writer uh, I read this weekend said that what's happened, for example, to, and I'm not trying to be anti any denomination, but what's happened to the evangelicals in America is they have utterly surrendered to the idolatry of power and have confused power with the gospel. But I can't hate them for it because that's the model... We Catholics gave you. We identified with power. And you didn't learn anything better. But uh, this lesson is going to be hard and coming. Because who is naturally attracted to powerlessness? None of us. None of us, I don't think. You have to be led there. You have that quote, or do you have it, in that book on evil about the ideas of the shipwrecked. The only ideas that are worth uh, remembering are those who have been shipwrecked. Mm-hmm. When I read that the first time, I went back to Acts of the Apostles and noted Paul was shipwrecked literally three times. You know, it's, it's being led to a place where your game falls apart. Oh. So um, I, I'm glad you followed uh, what the Spirit was presumably telling you But I hope you see already that you can do that in the Catholic Church and you can do that in the Baptist Church. (laughs) In in a way, it doesn't make any difference. Which church allows you to do it? Allows you to take the way of the Lamb of God. Mm. So let me just appeal to that. There's a metaphor we've both heard all our lives. And the radical nature of that metaphor, the Lamb of God is pretty clear where the lamb is leading us. And the lamb is not a lion, which was the normal symbol of half the empires in the world had lions at the gate. And we put a little lamb out there. (laughs) How different, huh? Yeah, so countercultural. Yeah,
1: it
2: is. I think as a as a guiding post too, the example of Jesus, where he seems to be moving constantly from um, out out of domination paradigms and into communion paradigms. Very good. Where the power thing that you're bringing up is is a transition from power over to power with, and that yes,
3: very good. That
2: might be where we can try to seek to participate in the. To use a real Baptist term here, because you know I'm a former, still kind of Baptist, um, that the kingdom of God is manifested in that communion paradigm. And that we can seek to bring the kingdom more fully into the world and participate in the transformation of culture wherever we are seeking power with With. and communion instead, and moving us out of domination and power Mm. over. That helps me anyway. That's well put.
1: Yeah, and it connects too to right, the, the different way of viewing how God suffers with us instead of with, being yeah. in persuasion with us yeah. and not just watching us suffer, right, but yeah. is in solidarity with us. Observing. Yeah. yeah. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors.
2: The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org.
1: To learn more about the themes of the universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. In the high desert of New Mexico,